Please turn to the book of Psalms. I'm going to look at Psalms 42 and 43. Good to be with you today. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, I'm Minister of the Free Church in St. Andrews. And as was occasionally said when I'm introduced, uh, I'm not the former president of France. (laughs) Psalms 42 and 43. Here's a psalmist who's feeling low. What do you do when you feel a bit down? Uh, in St. Andrews, there seem to be a lot of guys who have this problem. They, they play golf. Uh, they say it. It helps me. When I feel a bit low, a round in the old course really cheers me up. So it seems to be a regular thing. Uh, other people might uh, listen to music, Uh, go and visit friends, go away on their own into the hills, um, read a book, whatever. We're all different. We all do different things. I had a friend in the ministry uh, some years ago who, when he felt low, he he was a great fan of of classical music, about which I know know nothing. But uh, he had a very good sound system uh, in his study. And he would go into the study and he would Uh, adjust his chair right back, he would have uh, blacked out the windows. Uh, The lights were off. He would put some piece of music up, full volume, and he he used to say to me, he said, I just let it wash over me. Felt like he was just floating uh, in this music. And 20 minutes of that made him feel uh, very good. So here's a psalmist I'm seeing who's feeling low. Whatever else we do, it's very important that we go to God when we feel low as well. Whatever else we do or eat or read or or watch or listen to, it's important that we go to God, especially when our feeling blue has some sort of spiritual aspect as well. Now, just in the passing before we get into this, I want to make it clear that whatever I say from this psalm today, while occasionally it may have uh, relevance to the, to the issue, I'm not speaking here about clinical depression. I'm not speaking about that kind of uh, serious issue. Whenever people come to me with anything that I think just might conceivably be that kind of clinical problem, I always tell them, Uh, to go and talk it through with their doctor to see what issues might be be going on. So please don't take it from what I say today, that here I am looking at uh, a couple of psalms and saying the answer to clinical depression is just and you'll be sorted uh, by one o'clock. It's not that way at all. So just to hope that's clear. But all of us feel uh, ups and downs in life, don't we? And we go through... Uh, maybe even some of us every week will go through a few hours when we feel uh, a bit low. And we need to ask God's word 
what we're to say about these, these moods and how we're to respond to them. Also, let me stress at the beginning that I'm treating this as if it were one psalm in two parts, admittedly, but I think it all belongs together. If you just look at verse 5, you see that refrain, verse 5 of 42, why are you downcast and so on. If you look at 11, the same refrain. Then if you look at 43 and verse 5, the same again. So that threefold refrain holds this together, I think, as one composition of Scripture. So let's do three things as uh, we work through this material. First of all, I want to ask how the psalmist feels and how he explains what he's feeling and why. Then, secondly, I want to think about what he does in response to these feelings and see what we can learn from that. And then thirdly, I want to sort of stand back from the psalm or psalms and look at them from our perspective today. And that may not be clear what I mean by that now. I hope it'll be clear uh, by the time I finish. So the first of three things, how the psalmist feels. Now, perhaps most vividly in the psalm, he expresses uh, his feelings in two word pictures. Actually, each of them them using the same element of water, but using it in different ways. The first word picture is at the beginning of Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. You see the language of the deer panting for streams of water. My soul pants for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Here, he's aware of of a thirst. He thinks of cool, clear, fresh waters. And his longing for God is the kind of longing that we might have when we're really, really thirsty and desperate for a cold drink, and we know if we could just get that drink, that would solve the problem. The other word picture, I'll come back to each of them uh, in a minute, is in verse 7. Now this time the water isn't for his thirst, but he feels that he's drowning in the water. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. He feels in the problem that he's almost drowning. He has this sense of an overwhelming experience for the moment. And he feels lost. These two pictures are quite often used uh, in the Psalms. Let me give you one other example of each of them. Psalm 63, the first one. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Or the second picture, 
Psalm 69 for an example of that one. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the mighty depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. Now that first image of of spiritual thirst, you think about it, it's actually a hugely positive one. I mean, thirst is a survival instinct, isn't it? And here is the psalmist spiritually feeling this survival instinct for God. So it's a very, very positive thing that he thirsts in this way for God. And even though the other experience is, as I said, so overwhelming, you'll notice in verse 7 in that second picture that he actually acknowledges that God is in control, even of this, though he doesn't understand it, and he certainly doesn't enjoy it. But he says, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. This is a believer, desperate for God, confused at the moment at what God is doing. But he believes God is in control, even though he doesn't understand. And he expresses his feelings to God. I don't know what situations you might feel similar emotions or people around you. A desperate thirst for God or a sense of being overwhelmed by what God is allowing to happen to us. Later on, I want to stress, perhaps not above everything else, but pretty close to the top of the list, that it's so important to be honest with God about how we're feeling. There's something else, though, about how he's feeling that (coughs) makes the situation very difficult. And it's the way that people around him are making fun of him. There are enemies mocking him and driving him to tears and making him sometimes wonder if God has forgotten him. That's what he says. So let me read one or two of these verses to make the point. Uh, Psalm 42 and verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night while men say to me all day long, where is your God? Well, you can read yourselves, 42 verses 9 and 10, saying to God, Why have you forgotten? I'm oppressed by the enemy. My foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, Where is your God? He even expresses this as, as feeling something physical. My bones are sore, he's saying. I feel it not just in my mind and heart, but in my body as people make fun of me. Then again in 43, 1 and 2, plead my cause against an ungodly nation, wicked men. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected? He's feeling rejected at this particular point. Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Partly what 
may have been going on here. He's away from where he normally is, as we'll see in a minute or two. And he's among people who don't share the same faith. And uh, he's probably among people who will have visible gods. Uh, They will have idols of their gods. And they will say, where's your God? And he will say, well, we're not allowed to make idols because our God is, is sovereign and invisible and powerful. They're making fun of him because he doesn't have a God that anyone could see. And then they're saying to him, well, your invisible God hasn't done much for you, has he? Where is your God when you really need him? We too, of course, are surrounded by people who can make fun of us. Some of you will have that, perhaps, as a regular thing daily. Uh, I have students in St. Andrews who have it when they go home because they've come from a home where parents aren't Christians and uh, they've been converted at university. They go back home and their family makes fun of their faith. They don't share the same faith. Maybe some of you have it in the workplace Or just generally you feel you're part of a society where it's difficult to be a Christian because people make fun of our faith. I think the most important thing to say about that, I can't, uh, I wouldn't anyway in the home of Solace uh, or Solas. I I never know how to pronounce it. Um, But I wouldn't in in, in the home of Solace try to offer some kind of uh, sustained apologetic for the Christian faith. That's what other people here are, are qualified to do. But I think we do need to try and help one another more than, they do, more than we do when people make fun of our faith. I mean, in a fellowship like this or like ours in St. Andrews, we should be able to talk to one another about the struggles we have And we should be able to share with one another what people might have said to us and say, well, the next time they say that, how should I respond? What should I say? Can I give them something perhaps they might think about, that they might read, that they might watch? What can I do when somebody in a very specific way makes fun of what I hold most dear in life? How can we help one another to be witnesses and apologists and to be able to cope in a world where people make fun of our faith. And of course, behind all of that is the devil, the supreme mocker and accuser, the supreme enemy of all faith. And there's just one other thing that makes this man feel in such pain that I think is also very uh, important. And it's to do with his memories. In 42 and verse 4, you can see how he recalls past days of fellowship in, in worship. It looks as, if you look at verse 6, um, he's, he's, uh, if you put these verses together, he seems to be in the, in the north of the country, um, feeling far from the temple. And he used to be involved, verse 4 is saying, in temple uh, worship. He used to be a leader in worship. And he used to lead the multitude and they would follow him processing into the temple 
all singing together, thousands of people, maybe tens of thousands, all celebrating and having a great time in worship. And that is now all in the past. I think verse 8 is also meant to be in the past, um, remembering private, private worship. At night his song was with me. I think uh, in several places in the psalm, he's remembering good days in the past when singing came uh, easily. He, he's now exiled from familiar things and familiar people and fellowship and, and worship. And he finds that very, very uh, difficult. Now, that raises a host of issues, again, that we don't have time to, to think about. You can think about them for, for yourselves. I mean, in spirituality, memory is a wonderful blessing, of course. And when people begin to lose memory, it's a very difficult thing. So I think memory, in many ways, uh, is a means of grace as God brings good things back to our minds. But for this man, these memories just make things more difficult. He feels so exiled, and maybe he feels uh, useless now. Um, some people are asking me because I'm, I'm uh, retiring slightly early, I should say, but retiring at the end of the year, whether I am going to feel this kind of uselessness um, when I retire, no longer as involved as I have been in, in, in church work. But here's this man feeling so far away from uh, friends and from worship. And again, I want to say to you what a privilege it is to be part of a fellowship and to be involved in worship. What a, what a blessing that is. If you could try and imagine what it would be like to be away on your own with no Christian fellowship, what a blessing it is to be here today and uh, to, to enjoy that. So I would like to say a lot more about how he's feeling, but I need to move on, and we, we're having communion later on, so I don't want to take too long on any of these things. But you can get some of the sense, can't you? Read the psalm for yourselves afterwards. Some of the reasons why this man is feeling so low, and he expresses his feelings and the reasons for his feelings um, in this composition. Well, secondly, let's think about some of the things that this man does as he responds to this situation. What does he do? Again, I want to highlight uh, three things. The first is talking, and actually talking to himself. Now, it's a cliche to say that people tell us that's a first sign of madness, uh, talking to yourself. Uh, the second sign is answering yourself. Um, it's a serious problem. But please notice that he's doing this in the psalm, self-questioning, self-exhortation. Um, what I read already is the refrain. Remember verse 5, <clears throat> verse 11, and then verse 5 again. Why are you downcast? He's talking to himself. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why am I feeling, why are you so disturbed in me? 
Then he says, put your hope in God. He tells himself um, what to do. So self-questioning and then self-exhortation. He asks himself stuff and then he preaches to himself. He talks to himself. Now, you might think about what answers we might give if we were to question ourselves um, when we feel low. Why do I feel like this? What reasons might we, we give? I mean, sometimes, to be brutally honest, we might have to say, well, there is something wrong in my life. There is something for which I need to repent. Other times we might respond by saying, well, it's, it's something uh, physical, because the physical and the spiritual are very close. Maybe I've been trying to do too much, and I, I just can't cope with it. Sometimes it's psychological. There's some pressure in my life, or something's gone wrong in my life. Um, sometimes I think God is just reminding us that we're not yet home that this is the way things will often be like in this uh, imperfect world. And how then could we encourage ourselves and counsel ourselves? I think above all, what this psalmist is doing is reminding himself, even as he's struggling, he reminds himself of who God is. I can't remember who it was who said, talking to yourself is a good thing if you're talking to yourself about God. And that's what this man is doing. He's asking himself questions. And then he talks to himself about who God is and what God has done and what God can yet do. And he reminds himself about a covenant God, a loving God. And in that conversation with himself, and preaching to himself, he seeks to find help. Well, think about talking to yourself. The next thing he does is praying. <clears throat> praying. I mean, prayer and trusting are, are actually mingled with the anguish throughout. You can't sort of disentangle them. Um, it's quite a complex psalm in that way. You don't just... You don't just move smoothly from, here's this block where he's in, in real pain, and then another separate block where he prays and everything's sorted. It's sort of mixed up uh, all the way through. Um, let me show you. Psalm 42, verse 9. See this? I say to God, who is my rock... Why have you forgotten me? Well, which is it? <laughs> is he full of trust in the God who is his rock? Or is he asking God, I feel forgotten. What's going on? Well, he's doing both at the same time because he's struggling. And he's being honest about it. He knows God is his rock. But he doesn't feel God is his rock. So he expresses a theological truth, but then he asks an honest, existential, personal question. 
The same thing in 43, in verse 2. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? He knows the truth, and he says it, and yet he asks the question because of how he's feeling. I don't want to criticize this man. Some of the people I was reading about the psalm are saying he goes too far in the things that he says. Why have you forgotten me? Why have you rejected me? I don't think he does. He's simply being honest to God about how he is feeling. His faith is illustrated in all kinds of ways through the psalm. Perhaps you could uh, do that yourselves. Read through 42 and 43 and see how faith is all the way through, even at the same time as anguish is there all the way through. He keeps saying, my, my, my. And he keeps saying, why, why, why? The both together all the way through. He's hanging on. Somebody I was reading says, in terms of this uh, area of the psalm, Faith says, my rock. Experience says, forgotten. Everything depends on which voice is given priority. I think that's important. When feelings collide with faith, we don't let the feelings win. We express them. We live with them. We wait for God, perhaps through all kinds of other helps, to take us through this tunnel. But if we let the feelings drown out faith, then we've got a problem. We have to ask God to enable us to live with both at the same time and bring us through to the day when faith is clearly dominant and triumphant over our feelings. Well, you can, again can ask yourself these questions. What do we do when our feelings collide with faith? I think one of the most important things to say, and this is following the example of, of Jesus expressed in the Psalms, is to keep talking to God, however difficult that is. Not, not to pray long, complex prayers, but to keep talking to God. With that in mind, read Psalm 22, which you know is an expression of Jesus' anguish on the cross a millennium before it happened. And in that psalm, there are various cycles of, of prayer. This man is in anguish for all kinds of reasons on a cross. And he's asking questions and he's struggling. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in the midst of all of that, he keeps talking to God. And he comes through at the end. The example of the saints of the past, the examples of the Lord himself, and the most difficult situation any man ever faced, forsaken by his father, that's how he felt. But he keeps talking, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Keep talking to God. 
And he does one other thing, hoping. Hoping. In 43.3, for one example of this, uh, he pictures light and truth uh, as on a search and rescue mission. Lord, send forth your light. Send forth your truth. Send them to me and let them guide me back to where I long to be. Now, where do we meet light and truth? If we want to hope in these things, where do we meet them? Well, a couple of very obvious things. First of all, in the Psalms, these two words, light and truth, are often references to Scripture. So let me read two verses from Psalm 119. Verse 105 Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. And verse 160, all your words are truth, all your laws are eternal. So light and truth are two expressions for God's word. We want God to send his word to us, to speak his word into our hearts and experience. We want to keep reading God's word and feed our minds with truth. When everything else is making us feel dizzy, we want God's truth to be what we stand on. But something else is very important about these words, isn't there? Very obviously, light and truth. In the Gospel of John, these are expressions Jesus uses to refer to himself. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth and the light. So above all, we ask for Jesus to minister to us. Send forth your light and your truth. May Jesus minister to me in my need today. Then also in 43 and 4, he talks about going to the altar, looking to the altar, and at last going to the altar. And how do we go to God's altar Well, we go to the cross of Jesus with our needs. We look to that altar, and it's only finally at that altar that we're able to find the remedy and peace for our souls. So what does this man do in summary? Talking, praying, and hoping. Or to put it another way, inward, upward, and forward. (laughs) These three directions. He looks in and he talks to himself and exhorts himself. He looks up and he keeps talking to God, even expressing his doubts. And he looks forward to the day when God will bring him through this experience. And he has faith that God will eventually do that. Well, now thirdly and finally, just to look at the whole thing from our perspective and to highlight Again, three things, but to do them more more quickly. The three things, just to sum them up. Honesty, Calvary, eternity. First of all, honesty. I've said this all the way through, that the psalmist recorded his experience so that others might be helped. His honest experience. And uh, one of the great things about the the book of Psalms, the Psalter, is that there is so much honesty uh, in 
the Psalms. Now, I love singing hymns and songs, and some of you know that I was um, intimately involved in that discussion in the Free Church uh, two or three years ago on on the side of, of singing songs. But many of the songs that we sing now in St. Andrews don't have any of the personal honesty of the Psalms. Many of them, I love them, but they're often a bit unrealistic. But the Psalms are full of realism and full of personal uh, truth. There are many lessons that we only learn well in, in tough times. And the psalmist was learning lessons in these tough times he was going through. And he's absolutely, brutally honest about exactly how he's feeling, and he says it. And it's a wonderful thing, isn't it, that this is not in any way edited out of the Bible. (laughs) I mean, this is in the Bible, and it's in the praise book of the Old Testament. It's not marginalized in any way. It's not qualified or footnoted or whatever. It's just there. In your face, somebody who knows and loves and follows God and has been a leader in worship, saying, I hardly feel any of it, and I wonder if God has forgotten me. He's telling the truth. I think there's something amazingly helpful about that honesty, and I I want to say to every one of you, be honest in your private prayers with God. Tell God exactly, I mean... (laughs) He actually knows it already. So you're, you know, somebody's, we don't want to be honest with God because how will he cope with what we're telling him? Well, he sort of has always known it um, already. You can be as honest with God as you like. God wants you uh, to tell the truth. Honesty. Then Calvary. I'd like you to reflect, especially as we come to communion, on, on the pain of Calvary and how Jesus knew so many of the experiences that we think about in this psalm. I don't have time now to go into the Gospels with you. I was going to go to John and then to Matthew. But the points are that Jesus knew thirst, and he knew mockery, and he knew loneliness. Knew thirst? I thirst, he says. Mockery? Everybody around is making fun of him on the cross. Loneliness? Why have you forsaken me? The very things that make things so difficult for this psalmist. Jesus knew these things. And it's tremendous help, I think, in the solidarity of Jesus um, with us. That Jesus knew these things. Jesus felt these things. And so we go to a Savior who remembers what it's like to be thirsty and made a fool of, and feeling abandoned, or whatever. We go to a Savior who knew that stuff, who remembers it in heaven above, and who can be a sympathetic Savior. He cannot but be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He's been here. He's been through it. On the cross, he went to hell and back for you and me. He knows what it's like to go through hell. And we can take our personal, um, sorry if the language offends you, but we can take our personal hell, what we're feeling here. It's not that I don't deny future heaven and hell. But we can take whatever hell experience we go through here. 
And we can know that Jesus knows what it's like to feel and to actually go to hell and back, as he did, I believe, uh, on the cross spiritually. And then finally, eternity. Honesty, Calvary, eternity. Just think as we finish of the ways in which one day heaven and then the new heavens and the new earth will often an- will offer answers to the psalmist's um, problems. For example, just let me take one reference here and, and leave it with you. Remember the, the psalmist being thirsty and expressing his pain in tears. Okay, thirst and tears. What does Revelation 7 at the end say? Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. The lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Desperate thirst, gone forever. Tears of frustration and sorrow, gone forever. In the last analysis, the new heavens and the new earth will be the final answer to the psalmist's dilemmas and problems and to all of our uh, problems and struggles. Some people think that's not very helpful because they're in the middle of it now, but I think it's very important to remember that this is just for a little while. One day, all of this will be gone and we will have an unending vista forever of being with God and his people without any pain or sorrow or struggle or sin or any of the rest of it, completely fulfilled and satisfied in new resurrection bodies, in a new cosmos, with everything that we are and have perfectly fulfilled and all to the glory of God. So we can sometimes try to put our personal struggles in the light of that eternity and that weight of glory and realize that this is just, however painful it is, and it is painful, is just for a little while. One day it will be done with and we will be in a perfect world, perfect people, the perfect environment with Jesus forever and forever. A better finish. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.